listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Time. Uh, there's nothing magic about it, but, I, but we believe uh, that this is the inerrant word of God. This isn't like any other book. This is God's word to us. This is the primary way that the God of the universe speaks to us, his children. And so I thought, as I was prepping for this, what better way for this church, for us, to start this new year than standing together with our Bibles open and our heart inclined to what God would have to say to us. So I'm gonna read this for us, and I'd love for you to hear this. This is the word of the Lord. I'm actually gonna start in uh, the end of chapter three in verse 16. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and it came to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for a new year, new opportunity to gather together to sing, to remember who you are, to remember what you've done, a new opportunity, new year to worship you with our lives. So I pray for the folks in this room, God, as we gather and and turn our attention to what you have to say to us, I pray you'd speak to us. I pray that you use me In the words that I say, God, would you speak directly to your children? Would you encourage them? Would you remind them above all else that you love them? Not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again and happy new year. A little bit better than the first service. I got one, just Byron. Um, No, I wanna say this, man. I'm encouraged just, just singing with you. Uh, more, not necessarily it's a comparison, but man, it, it was, it's just good to sing with God's people, start the year that way. If you are watching at home, welcome, and we love for you to be here with us. I know there's a lot of reasons why you might not be, but I'd love for you to be here and experience it. God does something special by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through his people when they gather to sing and to open the word of God together. And so it's good to be here together. If you've been with us the past few weeks, Um, you know that at the beginning of Advent, we started a sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're gonna continue that this morning. And so that's why I read the passage that I read before. So if you're new or a guest with us and you're thinking, hey, that's a weird passage to read while we're all standing about this guy going out in the desert and being tempted by the devil, um, we read that because that's where we are in this uh, 
sermon series, so we're in Matthew chapter four. What we saw last week in Matthew three was really simply this, that being ready for a life with Jesus means that we should uh, be ready to change. That's simply what we saw, that being a Christian means that we live our lives not just for Jesus, but with him, and when we do that, we live lives of change. We embrace this ongoing ethic of confession and repentance, and, and since last week, I've been thinking about this idea that we really all want that. We all wanna live lives of change. We want, a simple way to say it, we, we see this around New Year's, is we want the year to be better. Right, we make New Year's resolutions and all that kind of thing, right? But it's, the new year kind of gives us time. It forces us to be introspective, maybe in times and ways that we wouldn't otherwise. So you, you know, maybe over the holidays, maybe you've done this already over the weekend, you look back at this past year and you kind of assess like, you know, what was good, what was not so good, and then you look ahead. And you go, this is what I want to be different. This is how I want this year to be better, right? Um, and, and you may not think of it this way. You might not be thinking about New Year's resolutions as, as it being birthed out of discontentment in your life, right? Of all the things that you want to be different. But that's exactly what they are, right? It's here's all the things that I wish were different. Whatever that might be for you. I wanna be more fit. I wanna spend more time with family. I wanna have more fun. I wanna have more financial margin. I wanna do this in my faith. Whatever that is, um, New Year's resolutions are birthed out of a discontentment in our life, things that we wish were different, things that we wish were better. Um, and, and they're a result of the fact that we all want changed lives. So what do we do? We look at our lives and we see how we want to be different and then we resolve, res- resolution, we resolve to be disciplined in certain areas of our life that will merit or, or give us certain out- yield certain outcomes that we want. And most of the time, unless you're different than me or the people that I know, most of the time our resolve lasts what? A couple days? Maybe a few weeks, if you're really committed, then maybe it lasts a few months, and then what happens is we go, well, oh well, I'll try again next year. That we just try to move uh, our lives down the line in that way. How long in the year can you be you know, on, uh, disciplined and, and kind of staying on what you wanna do? And so uh, what's underneath that way of living is this lie that I think most people in our culture believe, whether they're a Christian or not, which maybe says something about us as we follow Jesus, but we believe this lie that if we put the work in, and if, and if we have enough positivity, then we can pretty much make our life what we want it to be. We, we view life in some, some ways like a combination lock, and here's what I mean by that. Um, if we just plan enough, and if you work hard enough, and you put the code in right, then it opens, and you get the life you want, right? If you, if you work hard enough, if you eat right, if you diet, if you, if you study, if you whatever, whatever the thing, whatever the code is for you, whatever life you want, if you put the code in right, we essentially believe that it will open. And when it comes to Jesus or faith, that's just one of the numbers on that code for us. So we pray or we read our Bibles, we go to church, you give some money, you try to be a good person because it's one of the numbers, right? You go pass it twice, stop on the Jesus number, and then you flip it back. So if you put it all in right, then your life will be what you want it to be. And when you live like that, typically one of two things happens, right? So you either, you either drop the ball and so you think the problem's with you and you try again next year or you actually do the things you plan to do and then what happens when you do the things you plan to do but your life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would and you're left confused and angry and frustrated and wondering why God, why? I did my part, where, where are you at, right? There's one of two things happens when we live our lives that way. And, and the reason why is, it, here, here's why I think. Um, a couple weeks ago in our Advent series, we talked about one of the names the Bible gives to Jesus is that he's the Prince of Peace, right? And Isaiah 9 says that, and that's who he is. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the mighty counselor, the wonderful God, right? The Prince of Peace. But I think oftentimes what we do is we confuse the promise of peace 
with the promise of ease. And we think that Jesus came to make our lives easier. Jesus came to make my life better, and so we make New Year's resolutions to work toward having a better year, but when you read your Bible, what becomes painfully clear is that better doesn't always mean easier. In fact, maybe it seldom does. So again, most New Year's resolutions are birthed out of this discontentment in our lives, things that we don't like about ourselves or our circumstances. And so I just wanna ask you a question as we get started as a church this year. If God were to take all of the discontentment in your life, all of the pain points, all the sources of frustration, all the things that you wish were different in your life, if he were to take all of that and turn it into answered prayer, what would change? If God would take all the discontentment in your life and turn it into answered prayer, what would change? Would the world be any more righteous? Would the world be any more just? Would it be any more like God created it to be or the way it will be when Jesus returns? Or would your life just be a little bit easier? More comfortable for you and for the people around you? And here's the thing, the the truth is the change that we all ultimately need in our lives, those are things that only Jesus can fix. The change that we need are things that only Jesus can fix. And so we spend the whole month of December talking about Advent, right, which is the truth that Jesus came and he's coming again. And we hear this claim that Jesus is coming again and our response to that most of the time is like, yeah, Jesus is coming back. That's great. Yeah, Jesus is coming back, neat, right? But we are mostly unmoved by that kind of claim because our discontentment is so shallow it doesn't require the return of Jesus to fix it. We put the code in right and our life becomes what it needs to be and and, and Jesus is just part of that for us. Our discontentment in our life is so shallow it doesn't require Jesus to satisfy it. And so even if you're not a resolution person, I'm not a resolution person, I never make resolutions because then I can't, you know, quit on them. Um, That was a joke, no one thought it was funny, it's fine, it's fine, I don't need it, I don't need it. Even if you're not a resolution person, no one resolves to have a terrible year. We all know what it's like to, I hope this, even if it's just, man, I I hope this year goes better than last year. No one resolves, you know, I hope this year I become more lazy, undisciplined, discontent and frustrated and just drown in credit card debt, you know? No one resolves for that. We all want a better year. And can I tell you a secret? Chances are, for most every single person in this room, and I said something similar back before Christmas, but I think it applies even more to us now. Chances are, for every single one of us, there was a day in your life where you believed that if you could just get what you have now, that you would be satisfied. If I could just get married, if I could just go get that girl to go out with me, if I could just make this much money or move into this neighborhood or get this promotion or get whatever it is for you. Most of us in this room, there was a day in our lives where we believed if I could just get what you have now, then you would be satisfied. And yet, here you are, Still believing the lie that that to be satisfied, what you need is more what you already have. So we all want a better year, right? But, But how do we get it? How can we change in a way that won't leave us disappointed? And this is what Jesus is gonna show us today in in Matthew chapter four. I want us to see this together. Let's look at verse one. It says, and then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first thing I want you to see is this word in verse one. The first word in verse one, what is it? Then, right? One person, again, we're gonna get better at this. Then, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And this means that this passage is connected to the one that comes before it. So this means that the temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness, the beginning of chapter four, 
it's connected to his baptism at the end of chapter three, right? And, and verse one and two set the context for what's gonna happen in the rest of the passage. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And verse two says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So verse one, the spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is why we need to pay attention to the word then, because again, these two passages are connected. So right after Jesus's baptism, and you can read that account, we read part of it earlier, the end of chapter three, it's just miraculous scene. Jesus goes down into the water, and the Bible says the heavens opened. What does that mean? I don't know, like the clouds move, like the heavens opened, and then the Spirit of God descends out of that opening like a dove, not sure what that means either, goes down onto Jesus as he's in the river with his cousin being baptized, and then this voice from heaven that not just them two, but everyone could hear, declares over Jesus, this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased. Like, could we not agree, that is a big moment in your life. If that were to happen to you or even around you, that would be a moment in your life that you would remember forever. And the Bible says right after that, then the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So the first thing the spirit does in Jesus after coming down and after this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, is he leads them into temptation, which means for us that the spirit of God can and will lead you into difficult circumstances in your life. That's what this means for us. And it's why I said earlier that a better year, a better life does not always mean an easier and more comfortable one. In fact, maybe seldom does it mean that because the first thing the spirit does after that is to lead him into temptation. So remember what Matthew's doing as he's writing this gospel, right? He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience and what he's doing is he's presenting an argument that the Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. That's the point, right? He wants to say, he's the one, he's the Messiah, the promised one who would come from and, and save his people, right? He is the Messiah and the promised one. And in, and in Matthew chapter three, in his baptism, what Matthew's doing is he's showing, showing us that Jesus is divinely qualified to be the Messiah. We saw this in, in chapter one, he's the genealogy, he's from the line of David, but here he's saying he's divinely qualified to be this savior of his people because God the Father says, that's who he is. And then in chapter four, what we see is Matthew is showing us not only is Jesus divinely qualified to be the Messiah, he is morally qualified to be the Messiah. Because not only is he fully God, he's fully man, and we see he's tempted. He's, he's the one that Hebrews four talks about, that he is tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. So Matthew's point is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And so there's a question that should pop up in your mind when you read this. The question is this, who is doing the tempting? The Bible says the spirit of God leads him out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the devil is the one doing the tempting, but the spirit is the one who leads him there, right? It's important we understand God is not the one tempting Jesus. And so God doesn't tempt us. But even though God isn't the source of temptation, he's working in and through it, right? The spirit's the one who leads him out there. We see this in James chapter one. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then he says, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, right? So according to James one, what's happening to Jesus here is the devil is tempting him, but God is testing him. And the difference between tempting and testing is critical. The goal of tempting is evil. It's to corrupt you. It's to pollute you or to contaminate you, right, to, to evil. And the goal of testing is our good. 
that God's goal in testing us is to purify us, to refine us, right? And this is, if you know your Bible, what Joseph means in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis when his brothers sell him into slavery. And at the end of the book, he says, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant what? For good. So you gave in the temptation and sinned against me, sold me into the slavery, like ruined my life. What you meant for evil against me, God was working. God meant it for good. So we see that God tests and the enemy tempts. And we don't talk much about the devil, but it's important that we think rightly about who he is and who he's not. And so I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this because back in our first Peter series, I think in November, I preached a whole sermon on Satan and you can go back online and listen to it there. But what we said was that oftentimes we're gonna make one of two mistakes when it comes to the enemy. We either overestimate him or we underestimate him. So he's either everywhere or he's nowhere. If you got a flat tire on the way to church this morning, devil got you, right? He's everywhere or he's not doing anything in your life. And both of those are mistakes to be made because the Bible makes clear that Satan is real. Jesus says in John 10 that he, his aim in life is to steal, kill, and destroy. That is what he's asked after, after to a real, real threat, threat, a real enemy, enemy against, against us in our, our life and joy. So we, so we should not underestimate him. But the Bible also says that we shouldn't overestimate him. And the main thing that we need to know about Satan is that he's not God's equal. He's not God's equal. So what's clear, when you read the Bible, Satan knows some things. He has some power, right? But what, what we see is he's not all powerful. And Genesis three says that he is craftier than any other beast of the field, right? He knows some things, but he's not all knowing. And so what this means for us is that Satan can tempt us to sin. We know that. But what he can't do is he doesn't have the power to cause you to sin because we don't overestimate him or underestimate his plans to steal, kill, and destroy us. And so what we see in chapter four is Satan going toe-to-toe with the eternal son of God, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is everywhere at once, but he's also the one who willingly enters into the brokenness of humanity to bring us back into right relationship with his father. And so in chapter four, what we see is that Satan and, and Jesus are going toe-to-toe, right? Satan's going toe-to-toe with the eternal son of God. And, and he tempts Jesus three times, three temptations in the wilderness. And there's a lot we can learn from this passage because those are the same lies, the same temptations that Satan uses against us. It's the same things that he was doing in the garden against Adam and Eve. What he did to Jesus is the same thing he's doing now. There are no new temptations. There are just new ways of tempting us in the same old ways. Right? He just kind of repackages it. And so we see him doing this. And before we look at these, I'm gonna give you the three categories and the way that Satan tempts us. And they all start with the letter P. So you're welcome. Uh, the three categories are this, provision, protection, and plan. So Satan tempts us to doubt God's provision, he, to doubt his protection, and to doubt his plan. And I want us to look at each of these this morning. Back in verse one, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says he was hungry. Does that sound like the understatement of the world to anyone else? After 40 days and nights, he was hungry, you think? You know, my mom used to always say that we could never go to the grocery store hungry, because if you do that, you come back with all kinds of stuff you didn't need. So like even right now, like you're hungry. If you went to the grocery store right now, you would walk down the aisle and you would go, hey look, the Little Debbie Christmas tree cakes are on sale. We should get some of those. And you'll come home with like six boxes and you're like, why do we have this after you eat? You're like, well, because you were hungry. That's what happens. It changes the way you live your life. If you miss a meal, you get a little irritable, get on edge, you know, maybe not, not so nice, you're impatient to people. You miss two meals, you hate everyone. 
We don't even have a category for what's happening here. And Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, right? So clearly he was hungry. But, but take a moment, just think about how amazing this little detail is. He was hungry at the end of verse two. This is Jesus, 100% God, the eternal son of God. He's always existed. He always will exist. He has, Colossians says, all things were created by him and for him. He has all power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He has eternally existed in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. This is who he is. And yet, the Bible says that he becomes man. He takes on 100% of humanity, steps into the brokenness of our world to experience things all the way down to things like hunger. It says he was hungry. And then when does Satan tempt Jesus? Look at verse two. After fasting those days, he was hungry, and it says, and the tempter came. So the Bible says when he was hungry, the tempter came. When he wanted something, when he was tired and isolated and hungry, that's when the tempter came. And this isn't really the point of this sermon, but take notice of this in your own life, that Satan doesn't show up and tempt Jesus as he comes out of the waters of baptism. With the, with the words of the Father still ringing in his ear, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He doesn't come and say, hey, go around God rather than to God to be satisfied. He doesn't come and say, hey, doubt God's provision in your life when that's near. He doesn't even come a day or two later. He comes after 40 days and 40 nights, he shows up. He waits until he was most vulnerable and then he attacks. And oftentimes the same thing is true in your life and mine. That Satan doesn't show up to you and tempt you in the moments of your life where you're dialed into the goodness of the gospel. When you're confident in who God is and what he's done and who Christ is and your feet are firmly planted like Jesus says in Matthew seven, you build your house on the rock, the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ where you're confident that God loves you and that he will provide for you, then, then temptations aren't as difficult to resist then, are they? That's not when Satan shows up. He shows up when you're hungry. And I hope you know that's not just talking about eating. That's talking about desires. Satan shows up when you want something. You begin to question and doubt God. I mean, if God was good, wouldn't he give me that thing? Maybe I should just do it, regardless of what he says. He shows up when you're hungry, when you're desperate for that thing that you want, whatever it is, right? When you wanna have a baby. And you go, this is a good thing, why can't I have a baby? Like, God shows up then, speaking doubts into your heart and your mind. When you wanna be married, all your friends around you are this, when everyone's moving on with it, whatever it is for you. God's, the enemy shows up there and that's when he attacks. So I want you to think about your own life. What are the moments where you are most vulnerable to temptation? What are the spaces in your life where you're most likely to give in to attack? I think that all Christians should be able to answer that question for themselves. That we need to be able to identify the moments where we're most vulnerable to give in to temptation and pay attention to them. And here's why, I read something this week, I can't remember who, so I can't give him credit, but it basically said something like this, like the, the fight that you are most willing to lose is one that you don't know you're in. And so we see this and we go, Satan attacks when Jesus was lonely, when he was hungry. That's the same way that he's gonna come after you and me. Verse three says, in Jesus' weakest and most vulnerable moment, that's when the tempter came, and look how he responds. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is the first temptation. Satan tempts Jesus to doubt God's provision. 
He tempts Jesus to doubt God's provision. And the reason why I say provision is because this temptation isn't just like, hey, do a magic trick. There's some stones around, flip them into bread, you're hungry, right? The, the temptation wasn't that. There's nothing sinful about a dinner roll, all right? And the reason why no one said amen there is because you must not have been to Texas Roadhouse recently. Those rolls, that honey butter, amen, right? Dinner roll's not sinful. The temptation here was to doubt God's provision. And this is where it can become familiar to us because what Satan is saying to Jesus, he says, if you're the son of God. And and what he means is, is not if you are, he means you are, and you're hungry, so eat. Why, the point here is, is if, you, if you're the son of God and you are, then why not just eat? Why not just turn these stones into bread and, and have what you need, right? What's underneath that is this. If God loved you, wouldn't he satisfy every appetite you have right now? That's what the enemy says to us. If God loved you, wouldn't he give you what you want? And did you see where he says, if you are the son of God? This is an attack, not on necessarily his desire, his hunger, it's an attack on his identity. He's saying either you're not the son of God or God doesn't love you. It's an attack on who God is or who we are. If this is who you are, he says, wouldn't God feed you? And Satan wants him to believe that what defines him are his desires. His desires is what define him. We need to see here is it's not a bad desire. Hunger is not a bad desire. It's a good and God-given desire. But still he says, if God really loved you, why would he not give you what you need, right? Because Satan wants us to believe that if God loved us, he wouldn't deny us of anything. And look at how Jesus responds in verse four. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He doesn't say man doesn't live by bread. He's not saying food isn't important. He's not saying I don't, he's not saying I'm not hungry. I don't need that. God's gonna provide for me. He says man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His point is not that food isn't important. His point is that we are more than a collection of our desires. And what's interesting is that Jesus responds to temptation by quoting Deuteronomy three times. Anybody, your life verse, Deuteronomy 8, 3. Like, oh, that's my word for 2022, comes right out of Deuteronomy 8, 3, right? No, but this is what Jesus uses. And the the reason why, the fact that he quotes Deuteronomy three times, every time he's tempted by the enemy, it points something else that's going on in the text. It points it out for us. So the 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness, that's not a random length of time. It's representative of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness as they came out of Egypt. And so if you know the story of the Old Testament, you see what happens to Israel. They come out of Egypt in slavery, and they go through the waters of the Red Sea, and they go into the wilderness for 40 years of tempting from the enemy, but testing from God, ultimately. And, and what happens when you read the book of Matthew, what happens in Jesus' life? In chapter two, he comes out of Egypt. In chapter three, he goes through the waters of baptism, and in chapter four, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, and yet tested by God. And the point that Matthew's making, not only is he the Messiah, not only is he the one with all authority in heaven on earth, every square inch of everything sits under his power and authority, not only is he that, he is the new Israel. That's what Jesus, or Matthew's saying, Jesus is the new Israel, right? And so Israel was tempted in the wilderness. If you read the book of Exodus, they get out there and they don't have what they need and God's providing for them in ways they don't understand. He's given them this manna and this quail and they look back at Egypt, they look back at their slavery and they grumble and say, we should go back into that because our lives were better for us then. 
right? That, that's, what's, that's what's happening. They're tempted to choose their slavery over their sonship, and that is the plan of the enemy in your life and mine, is to get us to reject our sonship and our like, belonging to God as children and to embrace our slavery to our sin. But Jesus is the new Israel. He steps into our hunger, and where Adam and Eve fail, and where Israel fail, Jesus did not fail. And church, God will oftentimes lead you and put you into places in your life and provide for you in ways that you don't understand to teach you to trust him. He will lead you into places in your life that you don't understand to teach you, to, to make, to show you that your ability and your talent to provide for your life, to work hard enough, to get enough money, to buy the life that you want, it's not enough. And God will show you that. Look at how Jesus responds in verse four. His response, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. I would probably respond, he says, if you're the son of God, I go, of course I am. And I know the truth, so why are you even talking to me? Right? He, but he doesn't say that, he doesn't say, he doesn't point to himself, he doesn't appeal to himself, who does he appeal to? He says, it is written. He says, this is what my father says is true, and I trust him. I trust the words of my father. Church, the way that we will begin to recognize the lies of the enemy is by knowing what is true. That we will become people of the book, people who read our Bible and know it, and not, not just to check a box because we made a New Year's resolution, but people who read their Bible in such a way to, to, to long to know the God it reveals to them. And I get it, I've been in your seat and heard some pastor tell me, hey, you need to read your Bible. And you go, I'd love to, I don't know how. Right, we wanna help you. In just a couple weeks, we're gonna start a class, one of our core classes, our training classes called Christian Study. It is literally designed to help you understand how to sit down in the morning, open the Bible to read it and understand what it's saying and to learn about the God that it reveals to you. I'd love for you to sign up for that, you can do that online. So Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, which means that we are more than our physical desires. So what he's saying is we are made by God and for God. Think about this. God gives us a desire to eat, but that is more than just to stay alive, isn't it? Eating is more than just not dying, not starving to death. Because he, and we know that because he gives us taste buds and he gives different foods, different flavors, and he helps people understand how to pair those things together to make incredible meals. God gives us this desire to eat, but he also satisfies that desire with food because life is not about staying alive, it's about worship. It's about worship. We were made by God for God and God gives us food and the desire to eat so that it would ultimately in our hearts roll up into gratitude and worship for him. And, and church, all other desires are the same way. All other desires are the same way. The ethic of our culture is that if you deny what you want, you, desire, you deny your desires, then you're denying yourself. You're denying who you are, right? And they're gonna say that your identity is defined by what you want, that you are defined by who, or, or what you want is who you are. And Jesus is showing us something completely different. He says that we are more than our desire, that our identity isn't determined by what we want, but instead our identity is determined by who God says we are. So the first temptation is to provide for ourselves rather than to trust the provision of God that our Father in heaven knows what he needs and he will give it to us when it's right to have it. And Jesus, in the face of that exact temptation, to doubt the provision of God, Satan says, turn the stones into bread. Go, you don't need to go to God to be satisfied. You can do it yourself. You are enough. And Jesus says, my Father knows what I need. And he sees me. 
and I will trust him in his provision of my life. Look at verse five, second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is the second temptation, right? Uh, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt God's protection, doubt his protection. This one's harder for us to relate to. The first one makes sense. Jesus was hungry, he wanted something, Satan tempted him to go get it. We can understand that, right? We're all hungry right now, we get it. This one is a little more difficult to grab onto because why is it tempting for Satan to say to Jesus, hey Jesus, haven't you always wanted to jump off the temple? You're like, well no, not, not even, didn't even cross, the thought never crossed my mind actually. It's almost like Jesus is some adventure junkie and, and he's like, hey Jesus, haven't you always wanted to jump off the temple? And he goes, you know I have. You know I have, since I was a little boy in Jerusalem walking by the temple saying, man, I can't wait to base jump that thing one day, right? Why is this a temptation to Jesus? In, in Jewish culture, the temple is the most spiritual place on the planet because that, that's where God's presence was, right? And, and not only that, it's crowded all the time with all these religious elites of Jesus' day, right? And they're there, and the logic, Satan's logic is this. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah, the promised one. Tell you what, if you jump off, climb to the temple, jump off. Psalm 91, he quotes Psalm 91, by the way, just there, what we read. Psalm 91 says that if you jump off, angels are gonna come, they're gonna catch you, set you down safely, you won't even hurt your, you won't even stub your toe on a rock on the way down, and then they'll know who you are. The temptation from the enemy is, hey, prove yourself. Show them who you are. And again, he quotes Psalm 91 to tempt Jesus to do it. He actually leaves a whole chunk out Right? He misquotes Psalm 91, which means for us that just because somebody uses a Bible verse doesn't mean that's what it actually means. Right? The temptation is this. If God really loved you, he would never let you be powerless or obscure. He would protect you from that. If God really loved you, then he would protect you from being powerless and obscure. And Satan tempts us this way as well because he wants you and me to be controlled by what other people think about us. To be governed by, by what we think their perception of us is. And church, there are few things more exhausting than living your life to gain and earn the approval of the people around you. Few things more exhausting than that. Satan wants you to believe that lie that God can't be trusted to protect us from what other people think about us. And what happens when you live this way is that 20 people can encourage you. Happens to me all the time. 20 people can encourage me after a sermon. One person says something negative, and what, when you go home, what rings in your head? the jab, the one comment that was wounding and hurtful and you replay it in your head and go, well, if I would have done this different, then maybe I wouldn't have thought about that. Or maybe you come at it at a different angle. You say, well, they said this and I should have said this. And if I said that, then they would have said, you're so right, you're smart, I for forgive me, right? That's what would have happened. We replay it in our head. It's always fantasy land and dream world. Um, but but we, we live our life like that. Every word, every comment is overanalyzed. And we go, well, they looked at my post, but I didn't like it. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna look at their post, but I ain't gonna like it. See if they notice. It's exhausting. And we joke about it, but we live our lives in this space in our head of just wondering what people think and then analyzing what they thought after they thought it. It's exhausting. And it's not just seeking approval. I call it protection, not just because it starts with the letter P. Self-protection because it's, we wanna make sure no one thinks bad about us. Right, so on one hand, we want to be impressive, but on the other hand, we, we want people to think we're awesome. We just don't want them to think we're awful. It's self-protection, it's not trusting that God can protect us 
And so we have to be the one who curates this life that gives us an incredible reputation. And Satan says to Jesus, and he says to you and me, every single day of our lives, prove yourself. Show them who you are. Show them how great you are. Show them how important you are. And look again how Jesus responds. Again, verse seven, he says, it is written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, I would respond a different way. Jesus does not say, well actually, Satan, you misquoted Psalm 91. That's not what it means. Do you wanna get into a debate? He says, no, no, no. Look at what God says. He doesn't appeal to himself, he appeals to the Father. And he says, he quotes Deuteronomy. Don't put the Lord your God to the test, which means this, I don't have to prove myself to them or force God to do it either because I'm confident in who God says I am already. This is the point of this. He's so confident in who God says he is, that he's a son, that he doesn't have to frantically seek it in the eyes of other people. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about validation, it's that he's so confident in God's love and he knows that God will do what's best for him, that God will do the validation in his timing. That's, that's what's happening here, which means for you and me that we can trust God with our reputation, that you don't have to live your life running around making sure no one misunderstands you or doing damage control when they do. Well, when I said that, what I really meant was this, please don't think this about me. We don't have to live our lives that way. Instead, we get to live in the freedom of because God loves me as a child. I don't have to fight for approval and identity because he's already given me one in Christ. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And can I tell you a secret? Only God can validate you in a way that will satisfy you anyways. Only God can affirm you in a way that will actually satisfy you because even if you are able to impress people with your talent or your skill or your work ethic or your grades or your athletic, whatever, even if you are able to present a version of yourself to the people around you that impresses them, even when they do affirm you and encourage you, what's the soundtrack that rings in the back of your mind? Well, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't say that. Only God can validate you in a way that would actually satisfy because only he knows the real you. What God is trying to protect us from is the daily exhaustion of trying to control people's perception of us, to curate a life for people that is impressive in church. It's probably the most important thing I'll say today. There is a deep, deep freedom in simultaneously being able to love the people around you and not needing them to love you. There's an unbelievable amount of freedom found in this ability to actually, not just saying, I don't care what people think about me. That's not the point. Jesus says, love your neighbor. There is a deep freedom in being able to love the people around you, but at the same time, not needing them to love you in order to feel like you're important or that you matter. Look at verse eight. Again, the devil took him now to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So this is the third temptation. Temptation to doubt God's plan for your life. And we don't have a ton of time. So basically, what Satan is saying here is that if God loved you, that he would exalt you right now without pain and suffering. That's what he's saying. And, and hopefully you notice the temptations progress. They start in the wilderness and then Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple and, 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 or at least takes him to the temple and says, hey, jump off of it. And then he takes him in some sort of angelic power that we don't understand 
probably a vision, not actually, there's no mountain big enough for this. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world, all the things that God had already promised to give Jesus. Jesus. I'll give it to you now without the pain. You can have it right now. This is all the same things God promised to him. Satan promises it, he says, I'll give it to you now without the cross. And so why would that be so tempting to Jesus? Because Satan says, I'll give you everything that God promises with none of the cost. You don't have to serve, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to deal with the humiliation. You, you realize Jesus is the one who created everything and everyone, which, which means he, he created the tree they hung him on, which means he created the people and gave them the muscles in their mouth and the glands to excrete saliva to be able to spit on him as he came by to go be crucified for their sin. Like this is Jesus. Why would it be so tempting to Jesus when Satan says, I'll give it to you all, all of it, you can have it. Just no cross, you can have it now. No work, no humiliation, you don't have to suffer that. The lie is that God's plan for your life can't be trusted. And Satan says, he wants you to do that. I'll give it to you now. Um, Satan offers it all now that you could, have, you could have the promises of God without serving his purposes, without following his plan in your life. And we've all been there. If you've lived long enough, you know that there's moments of temptation where you're thirsty, you're hungry, whatever it is. And, and, and what Satan offers is so appealing. It's like if you're, if you're dying of dehydration, it's this glass of, of water, but in reality, it's salt water. And if you do it long enough, you come back to that well long enough, it eventually kills you. You're worse off than you were before, and then it eventually kills you. The lies that God's plan cannot be trusted, that you can have all of God's stuff without worshiping the creator. And look again at how Jesus responds in verse 10. He says, again, is it, it is written, you'll, you shall worship him and him alone. So I serve God alone. So basically, this means that the worship of God and the submission of his authority is the only way to get the life we want. Satan says, have it now. God says, you have to go this way. Satan goes, why would you go through all that? Just take what I have now. And, and Jesus says, no, the way to get the life that we want is to follow the plan of God, to submit to his authority. So he comes to Jesus and he says, I'll give you everything without God. I'll give it to you, all of it. I'll give it to you without God. And I, and I just can imagine Jesus saying, that's the best part. You, you could give me all the gifts, all the gifts of the creator, but if you don't give me God, then I don't want it. That's a terrible deal because he is the best part, right? Jesus knows that all of God's gifts and without God, it still produces broken, lifeless people. That's why you can set all the New Year's resolutions you want and what happens is that you still end up in my office going, I did everything I thought no to do and I, and I got it and it wasn't enough. What do I do? Because the gifts of God without God is not enough. It will not satisfy you, it can't. It is a glass of salt water when you're dying of thirst. The whole reason God the Father sends the Son is to show the world the, the, that his love, to bring us back to the source of what is true and beautiful in this world. And Satan knows there's only one way back. So he offers Jesus everything. He says, you can have it all. I don't, I don't want any of this as long as you don't worship God, as long as you aren't obedient to him and you don't go to the cross, right? There's only one way back, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the broken body and shed blood of the perfect Christ on a cross in our very place. And Satan will give Jesus everything to keep him on the cross because without the cross, without the plan of God, there is no real life to be found. We think pain means no satisfaction, and God says, no, 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 just trust me. Trust my plan. I know what I'm doing. I see you, I love you. Verse 11, 
the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so we don't have any time for this, but the point is this. Everywhere we fail, everywhere you fail, Jesus stands victorious. When does temptation normally end for you? When you give into it. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, maybe not the third time, but typically it ends when we give in and what we see here in Jesus, he says, be gone. And he left him. And angels came and were ministering to him. The point is everywhere we fail, Jesus stands victorious. And our fight against temptation begins and ends with who Jesus says we are. That we are not our desires, we are not what people think about us, we are who God says we are. This is true about us in our failures and in our victories. So, my middle son, Brooks, um, he's three, almost four. I wanted to make sure I told you that, just so it's not, you know, don't just tell him I'm three, Dad, I'm almost four, okay. He's three, almost four, and what happens when he does something that he's not supposed to do is he just hides. When he gets in trouble, he just hides, right? And he's real crafty about it, so you can't even find him, he's just hiding somewhere. But if he does something where you see him, then he just covers his face, because if you cover your face, then no one can see him, you know? Um, and the other day, I can't even remember what it was, a couple weeks ago, he, he did something, shoved his brother, or kicked his sister, or hit the dog or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> not important. And, and so he did something he wasn't supposed to do. My first response, because I'm not a great dad, is, uh, is Brooks, you know, I just like yelled at him. And so he just immediately covered his face, right? He knows he's guilty, he's shameful, he feels the weight of what he's done, he just covers his face. And then, then for whatever reason, again, not because I'm a, a great parent, probably because of the Holy Spirit in my heart, but um, I just had this, I was just compelled to, instead of correcting him, although I do tend to correct him when he messes up, is just to call him over, and I just grab him by his squishy little face, and I look in his eyes, and I just said, buddy, I love you, and you're my son, and I'm proud to be your daddy. And Matthew 3, verse 17 says, and behold, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what you need to know before you leave here today is that that declaration from heaven isn't just for Jesus. Because John 1, verse 12 says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Two verses, or two words in that verse that you must see, all and right. To all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not the chance, if you play your cards right, then you might be able to become a, ch- a child of God. Not, hey, here's a chance to try out for the team, or man, if you, if you work hard enough, then no, he gave us the right to become children of God. You have been given the right, not an opportunity to earn it, a right to belong to God the Father as a son or a daughter in church. God takes joy in being your father. He is well pleased with you in your failures and in your victories. And when you mess up, not if, but when you mess up and you feel the need to run and hide from God just like my son, you wanna cover your face and your shame and do whatever you can to try to clean up the mess you made, God the Father comes over He grabs you by your squishy little face. He says, I love you. You are my son, you are my daughter, and I am proud to be your daddy. In you, I am well pleased. Satan wants you to believe that you are your failures, 
that you are what people think of you and God says this, I'm proud to be your daddy. None of the good deeds you do earn your right to belong to him as a child. None of the, the failures in your life disqualify you from belonging to him as a child. And, and I know the response would be something like this, how could that be? Because nothing in our world works that way and I would say you're right, but our God does. Because the kingdom of heaven is run on an economy of grace. God gives us what we never deserve, what we can never earn, he gives it to us in Jesus. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all of your failures. And so, last thing, Jesus standing, him standing and withstanding temptation is not primarily for us an example to follow. It's not primarily going, hey, these are the steps and the things that we need to do. What is primarily for us, a victory to rejoice in. Adam and Eve failed, Israel failed, you and I fail, Jesus is not. Jesus stands firm through, and through our faith in his life, death, and resurrection, his victory over sin and death belongs to you and me. And so, we do seek to follow his example, but not to earn his love and approval. We do it, like I said before, from Matthew 7, we build our house on the rock. And man, you pursue your New Year's, New Year's resolutions, you wanna lose a few pounds, go for it. You wanna lower your handicap, go for it. You want more financial margin, more fun, more time with family, whatever it is, do that. Do that with your feet firmly planted in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the God of the universe sees you, knows what you need, you can trust his provision in your life, you can trust his protection over your life, and you can trust his plan for your life. Let me pray for us, and we'll stand and respond in worship. If you would stand with me. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your love. Thankful for your grace, your kindness, your mercy to us this morning to bring us into this room and to, from a maybe familiar but, but a, a strange passage to remind us that you see us, to remind us that you know what we need, that we can trust you in our lives. So I pray, God, that we leave here convinced that you love us, compelled by that love to go and share it with the world around us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.